will now read from God's word. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You can find that in the Black Bibles around you. You'll find that on page 1016. Again, that is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. You'll find that on page 1016 in the Black Bibles around you. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, and shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, guys. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and um, welcome to Trailhead. Thanks for joining us this morning. We are in week three of a five-week series as we look at church leadership, specifically what the Bible has to say about elders. Trailhead is an elder-led church. We have been since our inception in 2011, uh, and we patterned that after the New Testament. Every church we find started in the New Testament um, is not uh, an autonomous, healthy church until it has elders that have been raised up from its own local population. Um, And so over the course of this series, I am calling us as a church uh, to prayer. Um, I am asking us uh, to pray that God would raise up um, more elders for this worthy and weighty task. Um, We do raise up elders from within. Um, We don't go looking for leadership from without. We ask God to to develop it and and raise it up. And um, Uh, Our current um, seven elder team uh, could definitely use uh, help as our church grows. And also, of course, we want to to, um, expand the team so that when guys need to go on sabbatical, they don't feel an unhealthy pressure to continue serving beyond what is at a reasonable length of time to serve. We want to be able to get some guys in rotation um, so that um, this can be done in a healthy way. So I am asking us as a body, because this concerns all of us. Uh, to be praying that God would raise up um, uh, men to do this task. And, of course, I'm encouraging um, guys to, uh, to pray, to talk, to process, um, and, um, and ultimately to, to move toward uh, self-nomination and um, uh, the conversations that come with it. Of course, it's always risky because um, not everybody who pursues the office is, uh, is brought in. It starts a process. Um, and if somebody's invited into the process, there's a year-long elder process uh, that they go through where their character, their, their competencies, uh, their chemistry with the team and the church are weighed, talked about, developed. Um, and at the end of that year, if we believe God is um, calling, then we move toward uh, public installation. And so it's, it's a process, and each step of the process requires um, elder candidates to be humble and vulnerable, um, knowing that even as they step toward um, pursuing this call, uh, they are submitting themselves to God. And, uh, and ultimately, it's going to be God uh, who confirms or, or doesn't confirm that process. So I'm asking us to pray. Okay, I'm asking us to pray. Now, last week, um, I explained when, when we looked at 1 Timothy 3 and specifically looked at the term overseer, uh, we talked about our position um, in regard to eldership, specifically called complementarianism, this idea that, that when God created humanity, He created us as gendered beings, male and female, uh, to complement one another, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but different um, in key ways. And those differences are meant to complement each other, not compete with one another. Uh, but in connection with that, God has designed roles um, that are gender based. And I know even as I say that, of course, that is incredibly controversial in our, in our culture today, right? We believe uh, that the Scripture teaches us that elders must be men. And, um, and so I want to give you an opportunity um, to ask questions about this uh, and to process it with it. So let me just highlight, uh, go ahead and get that slide up there, um, if we can, the one with uh, 
There we go. Um, if you have uh, questions, we're giving you two ways to let us know. First of all, you can text your questions to this number. I apologize, that's not a memorable, easy number to, to text to. Um, it's a Google Voice number that was easy to get and it was local. So um, you can text numbers to it. You can call that number and leave a voicemail. Uh, you can do that as well. Uh, or you can email us at questions at trailheadonline.org. Why am I doing this? Because last week I opened up a can of questions, right? This week I have spent um, considerable time emailing, talking, meeting with individuals, with small groups, um, uh, people are just asking questions, and there are valid questions to be asked, right? I get that, um, and, and I want to be as transparent as we possibly can as to why we believe what we believe, the scriptural basis for what we believe, and also to engage the questions people, people bring. Um, and so what I want to do is, is, in a more organized fashion, collect the questions that people are asking so that we can address them, possibly in a forum, possibly uh, in some online uh, capacity, but, but to, to, instead of having a lot of individual conversations, move it into a group conversation because I'm finding that I'm, I'm answering a lot of the questions multiple times. Uh, a lot of people share the same questions. They have the same concerns. They're reading the same blogs. They're influenced by the same teachers. And so they're bringing questions, and, and I think it would be more effective if we can just gather those and, and let's just deal with this, right? Because um, here's the thing. As leaders, we are definitely open to conversation and um, are not threatened by questions. The reality is this week I was asked things this week that I've never been asked before. I've had people come to me and say, well, what about this? I'm like, I've never considered that. That's something I've never seen before. And it's caused me to dig in and study. And, and, and I want you to know that as people bring me ideas that, that even contradict what I believe to be true, my first thought isn't, how do I defeat that? My first thought is, how do I understand that? Right? That's not, a, that's not an argument I've engaged. That's not a thought I've... So let me study it. Let me look at it. Let me consider that. And let me continue growing through that. That's our posture with this. Um, so we have convictions, but those convictions are held with humility. And we want to engage in an intelligent and humble way uh, so that we can all continue to grow and talk together. And, and I think it's important to let you know that, that if you're in the church and you're like, Steve, I just, this is not a position that I agree with. This isn't a position that I'm on board with. Um, you're going to join a worthy little company of people here. Um, not everybody agrees with us on, on a lot of things. This is what we consider an open-handed topic, which means our members don't have to agree with us on this conviction. They do have to agree to be humble. They do have to agree to, to not be divisive or to attack or undermine um, the authority of the, the church. It doesn't mean they can't have intelligent conversations. It doesn't mean they can't hard, ask hard questions. It doesn't mean they can't keep studying. In fact, we encourage that. I think our community uh, is healthier for people that are willing to engage and have hard conversations, to ask questions that need to be asked, to, to sometimes fall on different sides of certain issues and, and, and allow us to examine Scripture together, but ultimately to grow in mutual humility mutual respect, and love. Not, not because we're exactly like one another or we share the exact same convictions as one another, but because we have the same purpose and the same goal as a community to grow in grace. All right, so um, go ahead and, if you wouldn't mind, just put that right back up. If you want to, here's a, you're not going to remember that number. I'm not going to remember that number. It's not catchy. Um, you can go ahead and type that right into your phone right now and, and just send like a dumb little text, right? Something something funny or nice. Don't insult me. Um, or do. I, whatever. Um, but then you'll have the number in your phone if you want to do that. And then if something pops into your mind, because you know how this works. A question will pop into your head and you're like, oh, I need to ask that. And then later you'll be like, oh, I had a question. What was it? Right? That allows you in the moment um, uh, to, to text something to me. And it also allows me when I see you looking at your phone to think, oh, they're not looking at Facebook. They're, they're texting me important questions. Okay? So it helps me. All right, so um, in this series, in the first week of our series, um, we saw in First in, in Timothy 3, 1, uh, Paul's assertion, it is a good thing to desire the work of an overseer. We talked about how that verse uh, in the ESV and in most English translations is a little deceptive because the word office is there. It says it's a good thing to desire the office of an overseer. You desire a noble task. The word office isn't there. It's a, it's a, it's a weird construction that says it is a good thing to desire overseership-ing. <laughs> it is a noble desire. It is a good thing to desire uh, the task 
the work, the labor, the love of, of laying down your life for the good of the body. Right. Last week, we, we looked at um, the first of the three titles used in Scripture for elders, the, the title overseer. And we talked about how an overseer is, is a leader. Right? They oversee. They, they, they um, are in the community, but are also responsible for leading the community. Right? They, they don't leave the community of the church, but they're also responsible for leading that community even as they stay in the community. Right? We, we use the metaphor of being on the dance floor and in the balcony simultaneously, right? In, in the dance of community, interacting, growing, doing all the things that the one another's of Scripture, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, um, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, being humble, repenting, uh, apologizing, all that stuff. But at the same time, getting up into the balcony to keep an eye on the whole dance, to make sure that it's healthy, that it's moving in the right direction, that we don't have people trying to start a mosh pit over here where people are going to get hurt, right? That, that, that we're actually paying attention to, to the health of the entire church. This week, we're going to be looking at a second title. The first is Overseer. The second we want to look at is Shepherd. Overseers love the church by leading. Shepherds lead the church by loving. They're the same office, the same people. It's a different way of looking at the same responsibility. Overseers love the church by leading. Shepherds lead the church by loving. And since all love requires submission, it means leading but through submission. Because here's the thing, we always submit ourselves to what we love. Always. There is no love without submission. We always submit ourselves to what we love. And so, so Peter is calling us to lead through submission. All right, so I had so much fun opening up this can of worms last week. I'm going to dig in further. And we're going to talk about submission a little bit. Um, why not? Um, I want to approach this in a little bit of an unusual way. Normally I save the application of the sermon for the end after I've exegeted the text. This week I'm going to put it right up front. So I'm going to give you the application first. Then we're going to get into the text um, and, and I think you'll see why. I want you to have the thoughts of the application in your mind as we, as we go through the text. Submission. Submission is an unpopular word in our culture today. In marriage, in church, in culture, we just avoid it. We don't like it. And, and here's the thing. It's for good reason. Because it is often used by those in power to abuse power. The word becomes a club used to, to, to provoke or to move or to force people into positions of subjugation in the name of submission. It has bred an insidious form of spiritual and emotional abuse in our church. And it's widespread. I have dealt with, with more situations of spiritual abuse over the last 10 years than I care to think about. When immature and ungodly husbands and church leaders turn to certain passages of Scripture that call for submission, and they use those as hammer passages to call for subjugation, you must submit to me. You must it often results in spiritual and emotional abuse. And often, in the worst cases, the victim gets blamed. The guy's like, if you were just more submissive, if you were just more godly, I wouldn't behave this way. If you were just more, and I've seen church leaders do this. If my church wasn't such a pack of idiots, I'd be nicer. If I just wish I had guys say, man, I just wish I could preach and not have to deal with people. I'm not sure you know what preaching is. Um, what ends up happening is that submission, the word submission in these contexts can feel demoralizing, degrading, and abusive. But here's what I want you to hear. The problem isn't submission. The problem is abuse of authority. We blame submission, and the cultural solution is to eliminate the word and the concept of submission. Right? We're going to go to complete equality where there is no submission, which of course is, is 
an untenable and unrealistic expectation because all submission requires, all love requires submission, right? All human dynamics require certain levels of submission. So I think there are three fundamental misunderstandings we have about submission, the application, before I go to the text, that I want to unpack. The first is this. Every biblical call to submission is first and primarily a call to submit to God. So, so when we see texts that call for submission, whether it is um, a text from Ephesians 5 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, or, or a text from Romans where it says, submit to the governing authorities, or, or a text like ours in, in 1 Peter 5 where it says, um, those of you in the church, submit to your elders, right? Whenever we see a call to submission, the primary call is not to submit to a human authority. The primary call is to submit to God. And there is implied in that a call for everyone involved to act in submission. Because we're all in submission. Shared mutual submission to God. We walk out our roles in submission to the God who gave them to us, which is why um, if we're in a situation where someone in, in leadership is abusing their power um, and, and that person is leading us to, um, to walk in disobedience to God, we're obliged not to submit to them, right? If someone is, is in a position of power and they are, in fact, demanding that I submit in such a way that it causes me to walk in a way that doesn't honor my God, that causes me to disobey God, I am actually called in that, in that situation to a higher level of submission to God and not to that human governing authority because my primary submission is to God. Um, here's the thing. Those who have authority, those who walk under authority, which all of us in different contexts have authority and all of us in different contexts walk under authority, right? That's not, these are not clear and, and defined lines in, that... that cover, it, it, they're, they're situational, right? But those of us who do, we have a shared goal in working out the authority and in the submission to that authority, and that ultimately is to enter into the flourishing and fullness of life. That, that is our common goal, to, to walk in such a way that we glorify the God who created us and we can walk into the fullness of gifts that He created us to experience, right? We have a common goal to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to enjoy His gifts, to enjoy life together, to walk into the flourishing and fullness of life together, leading and submitting and submitting and leading, which means that we all primarily submit to God. Secondly, uh, because of this, we need to understand the nature of submission. Submission can't be demanded. It can only be offered. In fact, there are, there are no biblical commands outside of two. There are no biblical... Nobody is given the right to demand submission from someone else, except in two situations. One is the governing authorities. They've been given the sword, and they have the right to demand submission or to bring consequences. And the second is parents. Parents are, are told to keep their children in submission because they have not grown to a place of autonomy where, where they can make wise choices on their own, right? Um, my little grandson, he needs to be smitten all the time, right? Because that little kid, as cute as he is and as much as he has melted my heart, would destroy himself and the entire world if, if, if he were not kept in submission. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to grow into a level of autonomy to a place where you can offer submission. But outside of those two contexts... The Scripture doesn't call us to demand submission from anyone. Submission must be offered. It can't be demanded. There is a difference between a command and a demand. There are commands in Scripture for us to submit. Peter commands, right? He uses an imperative voice. He actually commands us to submit in this passage. That's very different than me showing up and demanding that you submit to me. Does that make sense? So, so submission can't be demanded by those in authority. So that leads to the third. Submission is, by its very nature then, an exercise of power and strength. It is not an expression of weakness. Because submission requires an exercise of strength. 
where I bend my will, my desires, my strength to a greater good than my personal gain, my personal pleasure, my personal glory, my personal desires. I exercise the strength of my will over my desires to bring my strength, my capacities to a greater goal than building my own kingdom. You guys, that's why submission can't be coerced. Subjugation can be, but submission cannot. It must be given when someone exercises their free will for a greater good. And what this means is this. Submission isn't demoralizing. It's enriching. Submission isn't degrading. It dignifies the one who gives it. It is not an expression of weakness. It is a demonstration of strength, dignity, and power. All right, so that's our application, right? So now let's take a look at our text. Peter is in our text first going to speak to the elders, and then he's going to speak to the church. Um, And he is calling each of us to act in submission in relation to our roles. And he begins by addressing the elders. But I want you to notice how he enters the discussion in verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you, right? Peter the apostle says, I exhort the elders among you. All the elders need to perk up the ears, right? As a fellow elder, pause there for a minute. That's pretty remarkable. Peter's an apostle. Peter was one of the 12 disciples who walked with Christ. He he saw things no one else saw, heard things no one else heard. He, he had interactions with Christ. He carried an apostolic authority. Jesus himself basically said, the keys of the kingdom had entrusted to you, right? Peter had a lot of room to come to the table and say, I exhort you elders by my apostolic authority. But he doesn't. He comes to the table and he says, I exhort you elders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Notice he doesn't say as a witness of the glories of Christ, as a witness of the resurrection of Christ, as a a witness of the transfiguration of Christ, as a witness of of things that no one else saw. What does he say? He says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Where was Peter when Christ was suffering? If you know the story, you know that that wasn't just Jesus' worst day. That was Peter's worst day. Peter was denying Christ as Christ was being crucified for his sins and for the sins of the world. As he was being delivered up, Peter was acting in cowardice. He was hiding. He was running. He was confused and self-protecting. I exhort you by the sufferings of Christ as a witness of the sufferings. Why does he reference his worst day? Because I think he is up front moving from a place of humility and calling us to humility. He's, he's not showing up in power. He's not showing up with a display of his, of his badges and his apostolic, apostolic authority. He is showing up with the brokenness of a character that has been beautifully humbled by the glory of Christ. And he now finds his strength in his humility, not in his position. He finds his strength in in the fact that he has been forgiven, redeemed, and restored, not in the fact that he has performed and been impressive. He doesn't show up pushing his resume across the table saying, you need to respect me because I've seen things you haven't seen. I've learned things you haven't learned. I've been shown things you could only wish you could see. He shows up and the resume he slides across the table is very simple. God loves me. Christ is for me. He has known me at my worst, and He has given me my best. That's my strength. So He slides that resume across the table, and He says, I am a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's not showing up in His own glory. He's pointing us to the greater glory. right? So so I want you to catch that right off the bat. 
Because honestly, all true leadership and all genuine submission is rooted in humility. Pride is the enemy of submission, and pride is the enemy of love. Peter shows up demonstrating that he has learned a valuable lesson that he wants us to learn as well. That authority comes not from position, but from humility. And then he says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. What a powerful thing to say. After, after Peter betrayed Jesus um, and Jesus was crucified, Peter, Peter had a crisis. Um, and what do you do when you're in a crisis? You go back to what you know. So we went back to fishing, right? And that's the next time we really see uh, Peter in the story as he's out fishing. And, and Jesus shows up to him. And, and John tells us at the end of his gospel this incredible um, um, uh, event where, where Peter shows up. And they sit on the beach, and, and Jesus makes him some fish. I'm sure it was good. Um, and, and, and basically, is like three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter's like, you know I love you. And three times, Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Because you love me, Love those that I love. Because you have been humbled from your pride and broken from your self-reliance, now move in that humble dependence to lay down your life for others. The word that Peter uses here for shepherd is the same one Jesus used for him. Shepherd the sheep. I come to you as a fellow elder. I come to you as a witness of the sufferings. I come to you as one whose whose hope is, is rooted in the glory to come. And I say to you, shepherd the flock. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? Well, it means that you are going to submit your will to their needs. It means you are going to invest your energy for their good. It means that, 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 that you are, are, are going to say, Lord, I love you, and because I love you, I will submit my energy, my will, my creativity, my faculties. I will submit them to you in service of your body. Fellow elders, he says, I call you to the same holy and costly submission that Christ has called me to. As a fellow elder, Peter is able to call out three unique temptations that elders face. Three unique ways that that elders are tempted to abuse their power and to abuse their position instead of operate in a humble submission, working out their calling. Instead of submitting themselves in love to the needs of the body. So, so here are the three things, right? Because it's set up in, in comparisons. In verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. That's, that's the first point. Exercising oversight, not, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion. Ugh. Man. Not under compulsion. Not because you have to. Not out of obligation. Not, not simply out of a positional sense of responsibility, right? Here's the thing, man. We know we're getting selfish in our leadership. We know we're not leading in submission when we start resenting those we lead. When we start resenting the demands they put on us, the inconveniences they place on us, when, 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 we, when, we, when, we, when the intrusion, the messiness, the neediness, the immaturity, we start blaming them because it's so hard. We know we are operating under compulsion, under pride, under self-service and self-focus. Sheep will be sheep. Parents, you know kids are going to be kids. Right? People are going to be people. It's messy. Broken people do broken things. Immature people that are growing in grace do immature things that need grace. Hurt people hurt people. Dumb people do dumb things. It's just reality. 
When we start resenting the sheep, we are no longer walking as humble shepherds. When we start resenting those we are called to lead, we are now leading out of compulsion. Parenting out of compulsion, being married out of compulsion, um, employing out of compulsion, shepherding. Leaders are called to submit their strength to the needs of those that are called to love. Not because you have to, not because it's your job, not because you have an obligation, but because you love. It is only if you love that you'll be able to do it willingly. Don't do it under compulsion. Do it willingly. Right? When we love, man, I, I'm, I'm going to be inconvenienced willingly because I want you to benefit. I want you to grow. I want you to enter more into the flourishing and the fullness of life. I do it willingly, not under compulsion, not under obligation, not resentfully. I do it willingly because there's an internal magnetic pull to the work. I have to do it because I love you. I have to because love demands submission. There is no love without submission. I submit myself to your needs. I am compelled willingly to do it. This is, by the way, one of the reasons we require elder candidates to self-nominate. We don't allow other people to nominate other people. You may think there are people worthy in, in, in the church. Go talk to them. Encourage them. Strengthen them, right? Maybe point them in the right direction. But ultimately, it has to be done willingly, not under a sense of obligation. That means somebody needs to take the initiative to pray about it, think about it, and feel the call to take the step for themselves. They must be able to express a personal desire that says, I want to submit in this way because it is costly. Secondly, he says, as he goes on, as God would have you, not, shame, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's the second comparison. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. All right, so what's shameful gain, right? If, if we're not supposed to lead for shameful gain, we need to define what shameful gain is. Shameful gain is when you do the work to gain something that's not intrinsic to the work. Shameful gain is when you do the work to get something that is not intrinsic to the work. Let me give you an example. I want respect. So I'll put my name in the hat because if I have a title, I'll get respect. So I'm not doing it for love of the people. I am doing it to gain something that is secondary to the work. I, I, sadly, today, I, it's amazing how this is true. This is probably one of the first times in human history where this is true. But there are people that say, I want money. What's a good way to make money? I'll become a pastor. Right? Health, wealth, prosperity, gospel. People are bored and have too much money. I'll give them entertainment and maybe they'll give me some, right? It's, it's, uh, it is a sad reality. In, in today's money can be a shameful gain. If, if we're doing the work to get what we really want and what we really want isn't love of the people and the flourishing of the body of Christ, that's shameful gain. Shameful gain. It's kind of like marrying somebody for money, right? Money isn't the intrinsic reward for marriage, Right? Relational connectedness is. Oneness is the intrinsic reward for marriage. When we get married for money, that's shameful gain. We're looking to gain something, and the motivations for it are hidden. That's why it's shameful. We don't lead out, right? Nobody, uh, nobody volunteers to be an elder and says, you know why I want to be an elder? Because I really want people to look up to me. Because I'd be like, that's great. I'm glad you're so honest. You are completely disqualified. Right? You don't do that. You don't show up and say, I'd like to date you because you look really good and I think you'll look really good with me and that makes me look really better. People are like, that's so flattering. No. Right? We keep those motivations hidden. Why? Because they're shameful. Shameful gain. Don't do it for shameful gain. Now, listen, that doesn't mean pastors shouldn't be respected. Respect is a natural byproduct of being respectable. 
It doesn't mean pastors shouldn't be paid. 1 Timothy 5.17 says very, very clearly that some pastors should receive double honor. Not only respect, because they're respectable, but money, because they've devoted themselves full-time to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Right? There, there are examples in the text, right? But, but that's a byproduct of somebody committing themselves full-time to the work of the gospel. The motivation is the work of the gospel, not, not the income. The income is what equips the work of the gospel, which, by the way, if it's a true calling, would continue with or without the money. Motive matters. So we're not just talking about doing the work, we're talking about loving the people. So the solution to to being motivated by shameful gain, Peter tells us, is to do it eagerly. The solution to doing it for shameful gain is to do it eagerly. Because you love Christ and because you love His body, because you are loved by Christ, and your pride has been undone by that love, and you want to serve the body as Christ has served the body. Let me ask you something. When do you sacrifice eagerly in your own life? When do you sacrifice eagerly? When you love. Love's the only thing that will motivate it. Again, you submit your will to the to the benefit and the flourishing of another when you love. You do it eagerly, right? With your friendships, with your marriage, with your parenthood, with, with, with causes about which you feel passionate, with your following of Christ. You sacrifice eagerly when you love in response to His love. When you submit your good, your comfort, your desire for someone else's good. That is motivated. That is an eager sacrifice that is motivated by love. Peter says, be motivated by love. Submit yourself for the good of those you lead. Do it eagerly, not for shameful gain. And the third comparison, he says this, not domineering over those in your charge, verse 3, but being examples to the flock. Domineering literally means lording it over. He says, don't, don't lord your authority over them. Don't hold your authority over people to bully them, to threaten them, to coerce them, uh, to intimidate them, right? What I'm describing right now are the very worst leaders possible, and sadly, there are plenty of them. The very worst leaders wear their positional authority like a badge and demand a specific response because they have the badge. I'm the boss, treat me like a boss. I'm a leader, treat me like a leader. I'm the one in authority, give me what is my due because I have a position of authority. Peter says, don't be domineering. You can't command submission. Submission must be offered willingly, humbly, joyfully. Don't be domineering. Instead, be an example. Be an example. All right, this is really compelling. Don't demand submission because of your position. Compel people to want to follow you because of your character. If there is a problem in the leadership dynamic, the problem is with the leader. The leader isn't to demand and command submission. They are to grow in a character that actually provokes people to trust them. If you know someone loves you and is for you, if you see them sacrificing for your good, it will provoke within you a trust. And you will submit yourself to what you trust. In the same way you will submit yourself to what you love. They're for me. They love me. I'll follow. Compel people to want to follow you because of your character. When we initiate in love, people trust us. And when they trust us, they follow us. Abusive leaders demand submission and blame their followers for the lack of respect. Godly leaders develop the character worthy of respect 
and then say, follow me. They don't demand people follow. They are an example that people want to follow because they're walking the path of grace. And people look at them and say, I want what that leader has. I want to experience what they experience, the power, the freedom, the joy, the transformation. There's something there I desperately want. And in humility, a leader like Paul can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't imitate me in all my weaknesses. Don't imitate me at my worst, right? I'll show you my worst. I'll let you know where I struggle. But imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because we're all moving with the same goal, seeking the same destination, wanting to experience the same power, the same joy, the same freedom. Love, leaders love in such a way that you provoke trust. Leaders who lead in submission to love lead people to give them the submission of trust. Leaders who lead in submission to love lead people to give them the submission of trust. So Peter points us to three critical ways leaders need to lead through submission, humbling themselves and submitting themselves to the needs of the people they lead, that they might provoke a humility, a trust, a responding love that says, I want to follow because I want to go where you're leading. And then Peter points us back to our best and one true example, Jesus himself, right? Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. I don't know what this means, but it's really cool. It's really cool. When the chief shepherd appears, right? The elders of the church are under shepherds. The lead pastor is an under shepherd. There's one senior pastor of the church, and that's Jesus, right? It's, it's, there, are, there are leaders who lead under the true leader. And when the chief shepherd appears, when he comes back, right? That's a common way of talking about his second coming, his second advent. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. You'll be honored for your service. The chief shepherd will honor the sacrifice, the love, the humility. As Peter exhorts the elders, he points them back to the example of Jesus, and he says, lead out of a submission to love. Be a shepherd like your chief shepherd. And that's really profound, y'all. Jesus, the chief shepherd, models godly submission because he models godly leadership, right? Even though he was God, Jesus himself, eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in power, in glory, in dignity, and value, completely God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's and one what, submitted himself to his Father, right? His Father sent him. Jesus submitted himself to that mission of love. And in submitting himself to the mission of love, he submitted himself to our greatest need. In leading, he submitted himself to our need to pay the price we couldn't pay, to become our substitute in judgment so that we could become his partner in blessing. He bore the cost of our rebellion so that we could get the benefit of His obedience. Dying is our substitute, not because He was weak, but because He was strong. Submitting Himself, not because He was weak, but because it was a display of glorious strength. Strong to submit Strong to save, strong to love. His submission is rooted in humility and is an expression of love. So Peter points us, shepherds, he says, be encouraged. Because the chief shepherd, the one who has already walked this walk and and has led the way, the one who is the, the absolute model of what it means 
to submit yourself in leadership to the needs of those you lead, follow knowing He sees you and He honors you. You're not alone. He's with you. Now, Peter doesn't stop with an exhortation of the shepherds, though. He moves on and and addresses the congregation as well. In verse 5, likewise, in other words, in the same way, I've been calling the leaders to the submission of love. I call you who are younger to be subject to the elders. There's a word play here. Elders can mean older people in the congregation. In this context, it's very clear. He's already used all three terms, elder, shepherd, and overseer. Uh, He's using all three terms to speak of the people that hold a single office, those who are leaders in the church. And so he's saying, look, those of you who aren't elders, be subject to the elders, right? He's commanding submission. Now, leaders don't demand submission, but he is saying, look, this is good for you. The elders lead in love and submit themselves to the need of the body for the flourishing of the body. Don't fight against that. Don't resist them. Don't see them as enemies. Don't seek to undermine them. Competing with them for influence or or, or out of some sense of wounded pride. They labor for your good. They lay down their strength their self-will, their desire for comfort, their desire for gain. They, they, they lay it down in service for the good of the body, for the flourishing of the community. Peter commands us to submit in love for our good and for the good of our community. It is good for you to submit to your spiritual leaders who love you and suffer for you. Now, maybe you've been abused by power in the past. In fact, there's a high likelihood that there are many of you in here who have been in contexts where people who had positions of power use that positional power as a club instead of as, as an act of love. But the solution to that pain isn't to eliminate submission. The elimination, the, the solution to the abuse of power is not to ignore the dynamics of power or the dynamic power of submission and love. The solution is to redeem submission. To bring your will once and once again in line with the mission of God, to trust God, to love God in response to His love, and to seek to honor God in submission to those that He has placed in authority. That's why Peter goes on and he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, elders, Non-elders, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. Wrap it around you. Let it be the, the, the defining point of, of who you are and how you see yourself and who you relate yourself to others to be. Work in humility. Clothe yourselves in humility, a mutual humility and service, different roles, same expectation, humility. Leaders, what if the sheep are immature? Yeah, sheep bite. It happens. Submit in love. What if my elder is tired and worn out and isn't perfect example? <laughs> Which will happen? In humility. As an act of personal dignity and power, give them the gift of respect even when they may be lacking. Give them the gift of respect. See them on their best day. Don't define them by their worst. Because here's the thing, we're all stumbling together toward grace. We're all leading with a limp. We're all working out of our brokenness to embrace the humility. We're all seeking to humble our pride. We're all seeking to leave behind our woundedness. We're all seeking to to stop being so guarded and and so performing and so pretentious and so self-glorious and so self-interested and so focused on self-pleasure and comfort. We're all trying to move in the same direction. Share mutual humility.
We're a community of grace growing together into the flourishing of grace. We have different roles. We have the same goal. We're motivated by the same love, and we're moving toward the same hope. So I've already given you the application. Let me remind you. We'll put it back up there. Your submission is first and always primarily to God. The God who loves you. The God who sent Christ to die for you. The God who saw you at your worst and didn't define you by that, but instead saw the dignity that could be redeemed and restored and paid the price personally that it might be. Submit to God. And then in submitting to God, submit to the structures that God has created for the flourishing of human life. Secondly, give it willingly. Don't in pride rise up against the idea of submission as if it were somehow inherently degrading or demoralizing. It is not. It is an expression of love and a badge of strength, which is the third. Exercise it as a personal choice of power, understanding its dignity. When we move in humility, we are not humiliated. Humiliation is the result of our pride Humility is freedom and strength. Respond to love that you might move in love and allow humility to become the foundation of your strength. And in so doing, to honor God and to honor one another. That, Peter says, is how we move toward the flourishing community that we all want. That, Peter says, is how we move into the fullness of life that God has given the church. All right, I'm going to close this there. For this morning. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to move into a time of response, and um, we'll share communion in a moment to celebrate our chief shepherd. But first, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that, that you model all these things we find so difficult. You love, and because you love, you sacrifice and you give, you submit yourself to our needs and then call us to submit to you because you love us and are for us to trust you to follow you and to rely on you i pray lord that you would awaken within us a responding trust if there are those here this morning who who haven't trusted in you have not responded to the gift of grace and the gospel to trust in christ i pray lord that you would prompt them and provoke them this morning to feel that love, to know that incredible gift, and to respond in faith, to trust you more than they trust themselves, to, to lean into your salvation provided in Christ instead of building their own self-salvation projects. I pray, Lord, that you would teach them the beauty of submission, which is the beauty of receiving, the gift of love and the initiation of love. And help us all, Lord, to grow in humility. We live in a culture that is easily offended and quickly defensive. We like, to, we like to belittle others thinking somehow it builds us up. Teach us what it means to clothe ourselves in humility. Mutual humility. Where we can see one another and love one another. And grow together. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.